Right in D.C., here's Gail Trotter. What is a hero? I'm here today talking with Todd Lindbergh, author of a new book called The Heroic Heart, Greatness, Ancient and Modern. Thank you so much for joining me, Todd. Gail, glad to be with you. So what is a hero? How do you define a hero? Well, I think it's a definition that changes somewhat over time. If you look to the classical world, uh, the world that Homer described in the Iliad, the world of Achilles and Agamemnon, you see these sort of almost larger-than-life figures of exceptional prowess on the battlefield. Uh, They are willing to risk their lives, and uh, they do so routinely in these awesome displays of military valor. They're kind of slaying and conquering heroes. We don't really have much place in our society for Achilles. Uh, He would not fit in very well. I think uh, anybody who woke up in the morning uh, decided that this was the day they were going to conquer the world, like Alexander (laughs) the Great, would probably be put away someplace safe by nightfall. Yes. Um, But there is is still a type of hero that I think is distinctive and characteristic of this democratic society, this egalitarian society in which we live, the modern world, writ broadly. And I think that's the uh, character who is no less willing to put his life or her life on the line, but doesn't do it for the purpose of conquering and slaying or even just an expression of superiority over others, but rather... It's the saving hero. It's the somebody who puts it all on the line for the sake of others. It's the 9-11 firefighter, I think, is the, is the archetype. Uh, somebody who, uh, who knows that day, not, you know, uh, not so long ago, that it's a, it's a terrible day. And it, the chances of good things coming out of it are, are pretty minimal. But nevertheless, as, as a result of training, as a result of personal bravery, as a result of camaraderie with the... Uh, his or her fellow firefighters you know, runs into the building to try to save people's lives. Those are, those are the consensus figures of heroism nowadays. You tell some excellent and amazing stories in your book. And I have to admit that one that really jumped out at me was about a woman named Lucretia. And I have a friend who is named Lucretia. Ah. And I had never heard this story before. Please tell. Well, I hope your friend... Uh, knows the story, uh, but it's a fascinating story that takes place at the end of uh, the kingdom of Rome, and this is uh, important. So uh, this is a somewhat difficult story to pin down as to its uh, uh, relationship between historical truth and, you know, legend embellishment, but it is in, you know, it is in historical sources dating considerably back, although not back to the original time. But Lucretia was the wife of a Roman nobleman, uh, and uh, he was in service to uh, the king in a battle area, a uh, battlefield not far from Rome, and she was back at home. Then one day, and sources vary on exactly how this happened, uh, the uh, son of the king uh, found himself in the home of Lucretia, uh, the wife of the nobleman, and uh, Tarkin was his name in the anglicized version, and Tarkin... Uh, uh, became smitten, shall we say, with Lucretia. Uh, so much so uh, that he became dastardly. Uh, so he crept into her bedchamber uh, that night and and s- said that he wanted his way with her and that she would uh, comply That's a very old-fashioned way of saying that, I just want to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apologies. You know, he, he, he intended, let's, let's be more brutal. Um, he, was, he was going to uh, rape her unless she consented. 
and uh, and the, the, there's no mincing words about that. And she knew uh, that she was powerless to resist him. And she also knew that he had considerable power over her in the aftermath. Let's face it, this. Uh, period we're talking about was not really prime time for the rights of women. No. Uh, and especially not when uh, the person who's telling the other side of the story happens to be the son of the king. Uh, this is difficult. Uh, if she, uh, you know, she, she resisted as best she could. She tried to talk him out of it. She did everything she could, but in the end, uh, couldn't. And, uh, and, so he, and so he raped her. And uh, she was mortified, uh, not only because of what had happened, but also because of her seeming Inability. What could she do, really, to regain her honor? Who would believe Lucretia in these circumstances? Well, and didn't he say that he would kill her? She was going to, she, he was going to have his way with her regardless, and he might kill her and use the servant to say that that she had participated in it and just completely Yeah, the alternative was her. just to uh, ruin her reputation posthumously by killing the both uh, both Lucretia and the servant and leaving the uh, arranging the, the scene to make it look like uh, he'd caught them in the act. So, I mean, it's it's a, he is a completely and thoroughly reprehensible character, I think is the uh, is the takeaway. And Lucretia is uh, um, an embodiment of uh, uh, of a sense of her personal honor, her sense of her personal virtue. Uh, and she does not know exactly at first what to do about this, but then she hits on it. And so she arranges a public scene. Their sources differ a little bit about what the circumstances are, but in any case, it, it was a, a, a group of people. And she rose up and came before them and accused Tarkin of exactly what he had done. And of course, the people assembled were startled and surprised by this, but not nearly uh, as startled and surprised as they were when she pulled out a dagger from her gown and plunged it into her own heart, mm. thus establishing beyond, I think, the shadow of a doubt, the truth of the claim that she made. Because who really would make up a lie and then to, to demonstrate its validity do that? And in that way, she vindicated herself and her honor, and she did it, of course, at the cost of her life, but it was worth it to her because she did not want to continue in, uh, in, that, uh, in that vein. She said before she died that it was on the people who were listening to her to exact their vengeance on Tarkin. Um, but it's clear that from the story and the various ways in which it's been told that it wasn't about getting vengeance on Tarkin. It was about truth, and it was about her. It was about what she would never do uh, which was, uh, which is to say, defile her 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 vows to her husband, um, and uh, as it happened, uh, the the people did respond. The people who heard this did respond to her uh, uh, when they responded with outrage, and uh, uh, some one of the accounts has them galloping off to Rome and telling the same story in the forum, and the crowds becoming outraged. But in any case, um, it forced essentially uh, Tarquin and, and the king into exile, and it ended the kingdom of Rome. Thus, it's the beginning of the Roman Republic. So we have this spectacular act of heroic courage uh, at cost to her own life that actually has the effect not only of completely vindicating her honor for all time, but also of bringing down the kingdom of Rome and paving That's the way no for the Republic. That's no small feat. Exactly. 
You make the point in the book through all these examples of historic figures that heroes in ancient time really presented a problem for the established order. Many times they would found a new religion or found a new country or order of uh, you know, political organization. And one of the examples you use is King Arthur yes. and his round table. You tell mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think King Arthur actually had a very good publicist back in his day, <laughs> uh, if there, if indeed there was a King Arthur, which there, which there probably was, and, and a round table, which there probably was. But the idea here is, of course, that King Arthur presents himself not as the you know, Lord Supreme over all of his vassal uh, uh, knights, but actually as kind of, you know, first among equals, whatever that means, right? He's got a round table. He wants it at the head of the table. He won't lord it over everybody. And, uh, you know, I think that the propaganda element uh, of that is pretty clear in the sense that everybody knew who the king was sitting around that table. It was not in doubt. And, uh, and for that matter, you know, I think everybody knew uh, who... King Arthur's favorite knights were, uh, you know, Sir Bedivere and Sir Gawain, and you know all those all those guys from the from the old stories. Um, and, but you know, I think it is a a very good story that explains, in a way, the origin of feudal order. Essentially, what, what you have is kings worry about powerful barons and knights and powerful others around them, strongmen, heroes, heroic types, coming up against them. Uh, they have to worry about that all the time, all the time. Um, and uh, what can you do to stop it? I mean, how do, you, how do you prevent that sort of type from coming on the scene and pretty much ruining your day and your kingdom and taking your head and all the rest of it? This is a challenge. And one of the, I think, decisive ways in which kings have attempted to pull off this uh, considerable feat is by conveying essentially titles of nobility and privileges to those who might potentially be the most likely to threaten them. Uh, and thus we have, uh, the, uh, in a way, the origin. Again, this is not a, uh, a precise historical account, but I think it is a kind of genealogical account of how feudal order comes into being. It is a way, in effect, of, uh, uh, of the king trying to prevent uh, the emergence of a certain heroic type who might be a threat to the crown. And as I think one of the things that uh, must have pleased kings was when uh, they were uh, watching the knights joust uh, at the uh, at their roundtable games, as they became known, uh, because I you know, here 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 are the characters who might be spending their time plotting against the king, uh, playing games and jousting in that fashion. So I think that's uh, that's good for the king. Now, of course, it didn't always work in the sense that. Uh, there were certainly, oh, we've got the Wars of the Roses, you know, that it shows that, uh, that the feudal system doesn't always provide for stability, but it provided for more stability, I think. It's it, it, it a response to a genuine problem. And the problem is not just related to the legitimacy of the king, it's also uh, related to the, uh, the heroic type and the danger that the heroic type can pose to the king's order. Moving from ancient heroes who your book demonstrates were really pursuing their own honor or greatness in their persona, wanting to have this, this own internal calculation of their greatness, switching that to today. Yes. We had the example of a file clerk and the Potomac River and a horrible, horrible tragedy. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, the file clerk in question is a man named Lenny Skutnik, and he worked for the federal government. And one day, one cold January day, uh, a plane taking off from what was then called National Airport 
uh, now Reagan National Airport, uh, uh, something went wrong and it crashed into the Potomac. And uh, there were survivors, fortunately. Uh, and there were people in the water. And in fact, one woman in the water was having a very d- difficult time uh, grabbing onto the, the rope that had been extended or you know, the lifeline that had been extended to her. And people standing on the banks you know, uh, saw this. And there were actually apparently hundreds of people standing on the banks and, and experiencing the, the, her struggle in the water. Um, but it was only Lenny Skutnik, who happened to be driving by and happened to have stopped, uh, who jumped into the water and uh, he jumped in the water and got to the woman and got her situated in the life buoy and uh, uh, they hauled her you know successfully out of the water uh, he meanwhile um, got back in his car and drove away uh, wet um, nobody knew who he was there was all of a sudden there was a, a kind of manhunt for who is this who is this hero who is this who is this hero who when hundreds of people were standing around including first responders who you know uh, he he was the only, he was the only one who actually had it in him to jump into the water to save this woman and uh, well eventually they did they did find Lenny and uh, he uh, uh, actually became uh, uh, somewhat be- better known as uh, president reagan invited him to sit in the uh, box, uh, the, the, the First Lady's box at the State of the Union address uh, that, that year, and uh, recognized him as a hero. I think it's a good example of, you know, the, there are people out there, we don't know who they are, but who have something in them that when they see something really dangerous and risky and someone in peril, don't think, well, ooh, I don't know if I want to get myself into that, but, you know, jump into the water, go for it. And uh, it's it's an extraordinary quality. We don't know who those people are because... You know those circumstances don't aren't self-generating, right? You can't go you can't go looking for a plane crash to pull somebody out of. You know it has to be uh, something thrust upon you. You mentioned nine eleven earlier, mm-hmm. and I know that you had said that it took you. This book was kind of in your mind for several decades. Well, yeah. Was there something about the events of nine eleven that kind of pulled it all together for you that you were able to really? dig into writing this book? Well, I think a couple of things uh, came into clarity that day. Uh, the first, uh, obviously, was the one that I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, I, how can you not look at those, um, uh, how can you look at those firefighters and not see, you know, the true face of heroic action? Uh, and, and, I, and I do think that if you, I haven't, I haven't taken the survey, but I think if you did a survey of, of who, who do you think is a hero, that, um, that you'd approach something like 90-plus percent consensus that the firefighters that day behaved heroically. And, uh, and that's, that's not a small thing in this society, by the way. You know, opinions do differ in democratic societies, and lately uh, there's been plenty of polarization. We've all talked about that. You couldn't find a political figure about whom you'd achieve 95 percent consensus on his... Uh, or her status as a hero, right? Uh, you know that's that's not going to happen. But these guys, yes. And so that was the first thing. The second thing that occurred to me was uh, about as as we learn more about how the attack was perpetrated and who the who was behind it, uh, that really there was a kind of a, uh, a figure who was in a way a kind of throwback to a different era, uh, an era where um, heroes conquered. Uh, and that would be uh, Osama bin Laden uh, and possibly even some of the people working with him. And what we don't acknowledge in any sense that, that people like that are, are at all heroes. And we have a different word for them, and that word is villains. 
but you but the willingness uh, to act out of a claim of uh, sort of superiority and to risk and kill uh, this is a, a kind of throwback uh, and a reminder that notwithstanding how generally safe and secure we are in our modern egalitarian world and our societies based on principles of equality that there are some people who very much want to uh, do that in to get rid of it to uh, do us in and uh, so we have to be mindful about that type and we have to be vigilant against that type I'm going to quote from your book, and I think it relates to what you've just given as an example of Osama bin Laden, and I think this relates to it. How do you go about getting people, including the heroic types, vested in the existing political order, therefore aborting any inclination on their part to conclude that the existing political order is no match for their superiority and must be overthrown? Yeah, and the answer to that is that uh, it's difficult, but we have had a tremendous amount of success with this. Uh, look at the United States military. Uh, from the bottom to the top, you see uh, a culture of service, of dedication to country, uh, of a belief in uh, country. What you don't find um, is uh, anything like, uh, shall we say, the a Bonapartist tendency. You know, there's nobody, uh, I don't know of any uh, four stars, and I know a few four stars retired and currently serving, but I don't know any of them who thinks that the best course for the country would be for them to take it over and run it. Uh, that's not what's on their minds. And so you see an example of a way in which not only uh, in, in which, uh, you know, the, the, the people who would in principle have the capacity to overthrow uh, a government have no inclination to overthrow it because they feel fully vested, feel fully vested in it. There, there isn't anything um, that they want or, or need that they think this society, this government, this country is incapable of giving to them. And so enamored of the country are they that, you know, they are prepared to risk their own lives uh, in its defense. Now, um, this is a, an extraordinary achievement, of, uh, 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 especially considered historically, in terms of creating these conditions of stability where you don't really find this uh, much of an internal uh, danger emanating from people with, you know, with the weapons on their, on their hands. And uh, that's, a, that's a, pretty, uh, a pretty considerable political achievement. And, uh, and it stands pretty much in contrast with Caesar, say. Um, you know, again, a, a pretty, a pretty very effective general. Conquer, did a lot of conquering on behalf of Rome, but mainly really on behalf of Caesar, it turned out. Yes. And when push came to shove, you know, he was willing to, uh, in his pursuit of the position of the best man in Rome, you know, he was willing to overthrow the Republic and, uh, and uh, uh Put in place uh, an empire with himself at the head of it, and he stood at the, in his time, in his day. In contrast to, say, Pompey the Great, uh, Pompey the Great, who was maven have been fond of calling himself I Pompey the Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he was also a great warrior, a great Roman general leader, had several triumphs from his conquests, and uh, in general felt very vested in Rome. He was in and of the place in which he found himself. He was Rome's last best hope. Uh, in the Civil War when Caesar commenced it. Uh, and he did not succeed. Uh, you know, he, he was unable to save the Republic. Um, but uh, in our day and age, um, what we value most highly 
uh, is and what not just as a society, but also I think within the ranks of the armed services is this ethic of uh, uh, of service f- toward country for others. You briefly mentioned Christopher Hitchens in your book. Yes, uh, Christopher Hitchens, rena- world renowned atheist. Yes, despite his name meaning God, Christ bearer. Uh, and, and you've also written in other pieces about the three heroes, American heroes in the French uh, train attack, yes. that they were able to basically conquer this terrorist who meant to do harm to everyone on the train. And many people have said that their willingness to sacrifice that, some of them had military backgrounds like you're talking about mm-hmm. right now, but they were also, they met at a Christian school. They did. Uh, they were young men who met at a Christian school. And in your book, you talk about Jesus and the idea of the saving hero as well. How, how do you think all these things relate when you think of Christopher Hitchens, who in some respects, you know, is very uh, in favor of the Iraq war, mm-hmm. going to war, um, certainly had a moral compass, mm-hmm. uh, but denied that there was a God that mm-hmm. directed his moral compass. And then we see these young men who, you know, don't have the intellectual level of a Christopher Hitchens, but they, when they're put on the spot, they're able to give themselves over to it. Yeah, well, I think one of the more interesting questions that uh, people have to wrestle with from time to time is, would you die for your country? Uh, and if so, why? You know, what, what would be uh, the reasons for doing that? Now, um, I have uh, no doubt that, um, that uh, Hitch was, uh, uh, w- w- believed every word he said in his, in his crusade on behalf of atheism. But it was also clear that, as you noted, that he did have, he absolutely did have this, uh, uh, this this moral compass. So he was able to find some grounding for the for this kind of outlook on life from somewhere else. And I don't say that it's uh, uh, that it's impossible to find it elsewhere by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, I, I do think it is noteworthy that uh, um, that so many of uh, the people who volunteer for the military uh, actually do have strong religious convictions. And I've you know, had the experience of. Uh, Talking to some people in the class I teach at Georgetown who've been in the military and out of it, and they, you know, they, t- one of them was telling me about, you know, before he went off into a, a battle in Iraq, you know, meeting with a chaplain and talking things through and all that. And I think that's, you know, it's very moving. It's very uh, uh, indicative of, 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 of the kind of character that that you see in the, in the military. But um, when uh, when when people do that, you know, they, 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 some you know some people say, well, the, the old joke is, you know, there, there are no atheists in foxholes. Yes, and I, I, usually that's interpreted as meaning, you know, when the bullets start flying, everybody starts praying, and that's probably true. But um, when you think about it in the context of the all volunteer force, where no one is compelled against their will to join it to begin with. Uh, although once you're in, you don't necessarily have a lot of choice about what you're going to be doing. And right. it's not like people have never had second thoughts. So let's let's put those things on the table squarely as well. But nevertheless, you know, I wonder if uh, uh, the, the reason there are no atheists in foxholes is because of your, if it is this sort of religious foundation that makes you more inclined in some respects uh, to serve, to put it on, pull it, put it all on the line. Uh, thanks for mentioning the uh, the passages in the book about Jesus, uh, because I think it's very important for people to understand that the saving hero we've been talking about, that is characteristic, characteristic of modern times, is not a new figure under the sun. Um, the, there have been saving heroes going 
all the way back. In fact, I, you know, in, 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 to the Iliad, you know, our, our, our sort of founding literary and political document uh, of Western civilization. Uh, that would be, by the way, uh, Achilles' friend Patroclus. And uh, I won't tell the story here because it would take too long, but people will read the book. Read I think. the book. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but again, uh, you know, the. Uh, uh, Nietzsche had, uh, who was you know, blisteringly anti-Christian. I mean, sort of a, a, a Hitchens inspiration, probably in some respects. But you know, he had complete contempt for this thought of God on the cross, because gods should be figures of power. They should be the uh, the, the strongest in a world of will to power. Uh, what we needed were more gods of power. Um, and so the idea that, you, that, 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 that God should be dead, I mean, that should be allowed to you know, be presented as, 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 as dying. Well, I mean, this, this was an absurd revaluation of all values, changing the meaning of God, et cetera. And in Nietzsche's view, a real decline. I don't think it was, it was I certainly agree there was a change in people's views of God, but I don't think it was a decline. Uh, I think it was uh, something very different from that. I think it was a, an appreciation of the fact that this sort of epic sacrificial giving that is represented in the uh, uh, in the Jesus story is um, is absolutely central to how the modern world conceives of itself and uh, how we live uh, when we're behaving ourselves and being at our best and recognizing that uh, if we're not if, if if we're any better off than all alone then it's because of some other quality within us like generosity and uh, love and friendship and that flow from it. My final question to you is about a story from your own family or your wife's family about an uncle that made some uh, big impression on you. Can you tell that? Yeah, well, this is my wife's uh, uncle, uh, Uncle David, uh, David Robbins. He was an Ocean Township, uh, Ocean Township New Jersey uh, police officer at the time. He's since retired. And uh, one night, uh, he was responding to a call. Uh, it was a house fire, and it was a pretty pretty big fire by the time anybody got there uh, but the family had gotten out it was a big family in fact there was a the the, the fire started as a result of a, uh, yeah, one of the Jewish holidays involves a, you know leaving a candle burning and unfortunately it had cracked the glass on the table and the wax had spread and the whole place had gone up uh, it was this was a large Orthodox Jewish family, uh, but uh, and they, you know, they they were all out in the yard and they said everybody was out. But uh, my uh, my wife's uncle uh, thought he heard something, and uh, so he decided he had better go investigate that. And uh, the front door was impassable; the living room was consumed in flames. Uh, so he went around to the back and you know ma- managed to force a door open. And um, no sound at that point, but he, you know, he'd heard what he'd heard, and and you know, what people people who've just been awakened in the middle of the night and run out of a of a burning building, and you, know, you can you can imagine the kind of sense of shock. So he was not taking them at their word, and it's a good thing that he didn't, because after crawling thirty feet through the uh, through the house on his knees because of the thick smoke that was billowing overhead, he found. Uh, one of the children, a six-year-old boy, who uh, passed out in the uh, in the kitchen. I don't know if no one knows exactly what happened. Uh, maybe he, the kid got confused, or, or he went back, or whatever, but was overcome. Anyway, my uh, uncle David got him and uh, hauled him out and passed him on to safety. And he went. Then uh, you know, was, the kids was fine. Went to the hospital. And I thought, well, um, that's uh, that's a pretty interesting story. 
that is exactly what we're talking about when we uh, talk about the saving hero. Uh, you know, it's the willingness to uh, risk your own life and do it not because you're out to assert some sort of claim of superiority over other people. In fact, you know, my uncle David said, "What you know, whatever." Everybody says so when, when when they do something like that. Well, I'm no hero. I didn't do anything special. I just did what I was, <laughs> what I was trained to do, or whatever. And that's you know that's that's not true. I mean, he he, he did. in fact you know it wasn't his first outing in that regard. He'd uh, when he was a, a young man, he'd been a lifeguard and hauled somebody out of the water who'd been drowning. So uh, you know, so that's two notches on the belt that uh, most people never really try to put on. And uh, and yet here's you know he's Uncle David, the guy who's. Uh, sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I, and I thought that was a, a vignette, a story that, that kind of inspired me uh, in a way directly to look into this whole subject a little bit more. And, uh, and that is uh, what produced the heroic heart. Todd, you're my hero for writing such a powerful and inspirational book. And I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us about this today. Thanks, Gil. You can friend me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can read my latest written pieces on gailtrotter.com. This is Gail Trotter, right in D.C. 